Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. In this episode, we bring you the recording of a recent event on US approaches to private sector partnerships for development. Daniel Rund and Anna Saito-Carson from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies shared findings from the Executive Council on Development, a bipartisan group of leaders from government, business, NGOs and philanthropy brought together to look at how the US government could work with the private sector. Margaret Callan chaired the event. Good afternoon, everybody. Nice to see um, a large number of people here on this um, this presentation today, which I think is going to be very interesting and obviously it's highly relevant to the new policies on aid that have been introduced by the coalition government. Um, so today's topic is private sector partnerships in development, US approaches. Before starting, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. We have two speakers today who are going to present to us the findings of a report undertaken by a policy think tank in Washington, the CSIS, and um, Anna will provide more details about the work of that um, organisation when she starts the presentation today. Um, Daniel Rundy is the Director of the Project on US Leadership and Development at CSIS, and Anna Saito-Carson is Deputy Director for Outreach for the same project. So without further ado, I'll introduce Anna to introduce the CSIS to us all. And um, their preference is that we have a good long time for discussion today, so they're hoping to keep the presentation to around 20 minutes, and then we'll have a lot of time for question and answer. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Anna. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. Uh, Again, thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you so much for receiving Dan and I today to your school and your center. We're delighted to be here. Um, I just flew in this morning, so you'll have to excuse me (laughs) if I'm a little bit tired, but I'll try to stay awake here. Um, So uh, we represent CSIS, uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, I know many of you are uh, probably familiar with our work. Um, but we were founded in 1962 as part of Georgetown University as a Cold War think tank. And now since then, our programming has evolved, and um, we do, you know, we, our bread and butter is defense and national security, and that's what we're really known for. And then the second area that we focus on is on regional issues. We have directors in each region of the world following the geopolitical dynamics, the security, economic, social, human drivers in, the, in those countries. And the third area is sort of what we call transnational challenges, and that's anywhere from cybersecurity and technology policy, energy security and climate change, international trade, uh, political economy, and so we have a number of program directors who work in that area. And then the fourth and growing pillar of our work over the last five years is our international development work. And now Dan joined CSIS four years ago from his work at the IFC and other positions in the U.S. government, and um, this program was actually started with a partnership with Chevron, uh, who approached us four years ago to help um, fund some of our work looking at the evolving role of the private sector in international development engagement. So this is why we're here today, and um, we wanted to take this opportunity to just talk about our work because it's very much in line with Minister Bishop's sort of new vision on how she envisions um, your country to sort of engage with 
uh, a new actor. And so without further ado, I think we'll just go into the scene set and I'll go turn over to Dan. So thanks so much. Okay. Thanks for having us. Um, I had a past life at USAID. I also worked in the private sector. I worked in commercial banking and investment banking. I also was at the World Bank Group at IFC and has been, have been uh, at CSIS for the last four years. Um, I want to go through a number of slides. I'm going to go through them rather quickly, partially, in, well, partially because I, we do want to leave time to, to have a conversation because I understand there are a lot of thoughtful people in the room and want to take advantage of the fact that um, you probably want to have more of a dialogue than just me doing transmit or us doing transmit. Um, okay. Just thinking. How many? Okay, great. Okay. Um, there, we want to just set the scene in terms of the changing world of development. Uh, things like um, the incredible amount of growth you've seen since the year 2000. Uh, the number of people that have been pulled from poverty. Maybe these are in speeches that uh, Minister Bishop have ta has talked about or Prime Minister uh, uh, Tony Abbott has talked about as well. Um, but one of the things I think uh, is interesting in the U.S. context is that um, U.S. flows in the 1960s to the developing world, something like 70% were ODA of some kind, and now it's something like 9% of flows from the United States to the developing world is ODA, and it's a mixture of remittances, or it's uh, foreign direct investment or private, private charity. And so ODA has become, at least in the U.S. context, a minority shareholder in, let's call it, the business of development or as a, a minority force. doesn't mean there hasn't been – there's been a large increases in, in ODA over time, but it's – given the, the incredible growth in the other forces that are out there because of globalization – uh, that it's, it's a much smaller force than these other sort of economic drivers that are going on in the developing world. So this is, this is a snapshot of econo U.S. economic engagement with the developing world for the U.S. I, I'd ask you to – I don't have a, a chart that looks like this for Australia, but if you think about remittances from uh, folks in Australia sending money back home to, say, either, say, the Philippines or to uh, Papua New Guinea or uh, South Asia – or look at private capital flows from large uh, Australian multinationals. Some of the private voluntary organizations, or think of organizations like World Vision, which is 90% privately funded. It's a very complex, I, I would suspect it, it's not going to look exactly like this in Australia, but I would argue that there, it, the economic engagement of Australia in the developing world is complex and has gotten more complex and more enmeshed over time in the last 20 years than it was even, say, 20 years ago. But if you look at that, the, the blue slice of 9% is the U.S. ODA. Now, you could say, well, that's a, it's because the U.S. is, is stingy. That's probably that, – that's actually the wrong way to look at it. It's the way to think about it is that these other forces have, have been much larger uh, overall in terms of our economic engagement. And I would argue that the same has happened in Australia. Um, just some other facts here. Um, just some things to think about. For example, the size of the global middle class is going to go to 3.2 billion by 2020 and 4.9 billion by 2030. There have been a variety of studies that talk about the, the rise of the global middle class and what's that going to mean in terms of changing consumer tastes, et, et cetera. So there's just some, just some, additional, um, some additional facts here. Um, things like emerging governments, uh, many of you I'm sure are following things like the BRIC Bank. I actually am very skeptical about the BRIC Bank per se. 
but things like BNDES, which is the Development Bank of Brazil, is as large a um, uh, deliverer of capital as the World Bank is. Uh, the Chinese Chinese aid program, I think I think someone said, I think Julie Bishop said it's the same size as Australia's aid, or maybe it's India, is the same size as India is what, which, what she said recently in a... Um, there are so there are these increasing forces out there from the emerging economies, uh, as well as um, increased innovations and in things like um, public finance. Whether it's use, you know, look at IFC, the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, the private sector arm of the World Bank is the same size uh, as the uh, the IBRD lending is at the World Bank. It's some, it's, it's it's a you know very large. So the forces are are, are changing. Um, Something about the private sector here, uh, multinational corporations uh, have a number of contributions that they make to development uh, in terms of as, as an investor, as a taxpayer. Um, you know, we were having an interesting conversation at lunch that there's, uh, it's hard sometimes to measure the, the specifics in terms of what they do in terms of, say, uh, their social uh, contribution. But if you look at their size of their taxes or whether it depends on the sector, too. If it's a mining company, it's not necessarily a large employer, but they're oftentimes a large taxpayer. Or they're a, um, they bring global standards or technologies or certain kinds of practices. When I worked in Argentina, I ha I, uh, for Citibank, this is pre the crisis, there were 5,000 employees, of which there were two with American passports. I happened to be living there locally and was locally hired, but they had global standards on things like risk management or human resource, uh, human resource policies or things like technology. And all, all, a whole series of people spun out of Citibank in Argentina to start companies in, in Argentina, et cetera. So they bring all sorts, of, all sorts of other things other than necessarily money um, but the, just as the um, the additional thing is that the, with the globalization of supply chains in certain industries, whether it's agriculture in particular or um, certain sorts of manufacturing, you're seeing the, it's the way in which the, it's also having a great impact on the developing world. Um, in different case studies of, of this. Um, so, for example, SCB Miller in South Sudan is actually one of the largest investors in South Sudan uh, where they... Are they're they're um, buying cassava to build, drink to make cassava beer? I have no idea what cassava beer tastes like. I don't think I ever want to taste cassava beer, but I understand it's a great delicacy in South Sudan. So if you're ever in South Sudan and Juba, I think you you can try SAB Miller's uh, cassava beer. But it's actually it's important in the sense of they are sourcing locally um, from 2,000 smallholder farmers. And that, that has all sorts of requirements in terms of things like uh, quality and in terms of uh, their capabilities to actually deliver on a, on a, on a reliable basis. Um, and they're actually one of the largest formal employers and largest taxpayers in South Sudan. Now, it may not be given the current state of play in South Sudan today. It's, it's tricky, but, but I think you get the idea. Um, let me just, I'm just going to go through a couple of these. Um, I think things to think about are... Uh, examples like um, tech companies who are providing training to if you want to set up the internet in Africa uh, you need people who know how to fix and repair the black boxes of the internet and so Cisco for example has developed and partnered with uh, creating Cisco learning academies all over Africa 
And so what you have are people who are meet the global standard of Cisco to be able to, be, to meet a world standard while at the same time being able to help create and enable the Internet all over, um, all over Africa as a result of this. And so Cisco, along with AID and others, have partnered to help create these learning academies all over the world. Oftentimes they'll set, they'll set aside, say, we're going to have so many students who are women who are, you know, so there's also a gender component to this as well. So various things like this, multi-sector partnerships are something that um, matter to, um, so that these sorts of things can actually happen. Oftentimes companies on their own aren't very developmentally savvy. They don't necessarily, they want to work with development agencies or they want to work with NGOs because they oftentimes, the NGOs, the development agencies have on-the-ground expertise or they have certain sorts of tacit knowledge about what works in a country um, and they oftentimes are able to um, provide some sort of good housekeeping seal of approval as well. So there's also, but at the same time, companies bring their technology, their standards, their expertise as well. So it's oftentimes a good match. I'm not saying it's, it's a solution for every problem in development, but you're seeing a lot more of this sort of multi-sector partnerships happening, uh, as, especially in, in, with bilateral aid agencies. Um, I'll just talk for a minute about NGOs and philanthropies. Um, the Gates Foundation obviously is sort of off, off on its own as sort of this, this very large force. I know it works, I believe it works with, with the Australian aid program here as well. Um, but I know that there are a number of uh, philanthropies here in, in Australia that have an interest in international, um, international affairs. But if you think about organizations like I was mentioning earlier, World Vision, which has 90% of its resources comes from private, private charitable, 300 million Australian dollars a year. It's a very large institution. Um, there and there are a number of others. Obviously, they're they're the largest one in the in in the NGO sector here in Australia. But it gives you a sense of the sorts of and they work with large multinational corporations on projects such as uh, Coco in uh, either Papua New Guinea or I think it's Indonesia, where they're working on you know the world's cocoa industry needs an ever increasing um, so, uh, and predictable crop of quality cocoa because of the emerging middle class all over the world. People who are in the middle class want chocolate bars. And so as a result, you need more and more cocoa. Well, the cocoa sector is uh, plagued by things like the pod borer uh, disease or insects. Uh, and there's, it's also grown by smallholders in a number, only in a very narrow band in the, uh, of climate. So as a result, uh, things like expanding uh, the number of quality providers of cocoa is a public goods challenge for the cocoa industry. And they, they don't necessarily know how to get to work with on community development projects or working with local communities. They've had to get much more sophisticated about this in the last 10 or 15 years. And they've done this with the Gates Foundation. They've done this with donors such as AID or the World Bank or even with DFID or, or SwissAid. Um, and they've worked through partners like the World Visions of the World or ACDI VOCA or others as well. So you're seeing a much more sophisticated approach by the NGO sector to work with the private sector. Think of Oxfam or CARE or Save the Children. They're much more sophisticated about working with the private sector than they were 10 or 15 years ago um, because a lot of the problems in development are, are, much more, are much larger than necessarily one sector can solve on their own. Um, some other things about entrepreneurship, some other things about the changed world. One is that uh, the Gallup World Poll, Gallup, the polling company, uh, made a commitment about 10 years ago to poll um, 
at least 100 countries every year and ask the same set of questions. And so if you've ever not looked at the Gallup World Poll, I encourage you to take a look at it. I think it's fascinating. But one of the things that we found that we found very interesting is that in 2011, 29% of men in Africa between the ages of 25 and 35 plan to start a business in the next 12 months. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to start an Apple, Apple computer company. Uh, but what it, And it's, it's more of a question of uh, probably starting an informal business as opposed to a formal business. Uh, but I do think it's sort of interesting that there's this huge hunger out there. or there, this, this implies there's a huge hunger out there for things like being able to get skills on, on how to set up a business and how to run a business. There's also um, a desire out there for uh, access to finance, to set up businesses. And so this is something I thought this was quite interesting. Um, so I think this is also something else to watch. Here's some quotes that I think from folks you wouldn't necessarily think of as sort of who would think about the role of the private sector and private enterprise. Aid is just a stopgap. Commerce and entrepreneurial capitalism takes more people out of poverty than aid. In dealing with poverty here and around the world, welfare and foreign aid are a band-aid. Free enterprise is a cure. Entrepreneurship is the most sure way of development. Bono. So don't listen to me. Listen to him. Right? Jim Kim. The private sector has an essential role to play if we're to end poverty by 2030. Over the past two decades, poverty reduction has been driven by the creation of millions of new jobs, and 90% of new jobs come from the private sector. He's legit. Jim Young Kim, right? So it's not, you don't have to listen to me. Listen to Jim Kim. You ever heard of her? And she's, she's a rock star in the international development community. She's great in Gozi. She's, right? you, how do you transform the economy? You've got to provide the basic infrastructure for people to transform their own lives. In the post-2015 effort, we have to move away from looking at traditional sources of finance. We can't depend on donors. So she was part of the high-level panel for the next round of the MDGs. So, you're, um, yeah, so I think we've heard of her, Julie Bishop, Minister Julie Bishop. She began to leveraging the private sector investment to support economic growth and job creation. Um, John Podesta, a friend of mine who is the President Obama's counselor now, it was former chief of staff to Bill Clinton. Um, he and I traveled to Africa together in 2012 as part of a Republican-Democrat uh, uh, delegation to Africa that the One campaign did. Um, and we've done a number of things together. Um, he's now back at the, at the White House helping President Obama. The private sector believes in getting things done, and it's good at getting things done. And that is just one of the many reasons why we absolutely, absolutely need the private sector in partnership with civil society and government involved in the post-2015 agenda and why they can make enormous contributions to the shared agenda. So, um, so the U.S. Uh, – this is just a little bit talk, a conversation about the, the U.S. as a donor, Australia as a donor. I don't think these are necessarily that interesting. Let me stop there. That's the scene for – this is the changed world that I was talking about. Okay, Anna. So why are we telling you all about the changed world? So, um, so what did we do? Um, and the main objective of why we're here today is the report that you guys have um, right there, our shared opportunity, vision of uh, global prosperity. And we convened in 2012 what we call the Executive Council on Development. Now, as a bipartisan or nonpartisan think tank, um, in Washington speak, we like to have commissions and councils to, you know, um, I guess one way to put it simple, in a simple way is to legitimize sort of our thinking and work with buy-in of a diverse group of stakeholders. Now, it was co-chaired by, for folks who know sort of the U.S. sort of government landscape, 
um, Tom Daschle. He was former Senate Majority Leader. He was um, representing, you know, a Democrat. Two Democrats, two Republicans. That's exactly right. And then Carly Fiorina, who many of you may know as well, who is a Republican. Vin Weber is a former representative from Minnesota who's a Republican. And then Tom Pritzker, um, the chairman of Hyatt Hotels, who is a Democrat. And then Henrietta Ford served as our sort of honorary co-chair, and she had many lives in government in Washington, namely as the former administrator of USAID. So over the course of 2012, what did we do? So and in addition to this, if you go to like one of the inserts in the first or second page, you'll see the full list of folks that we convened. We had, for example, B. Perez, who's the head of sustainability at Coca-Cola, to Helene Gale, who's the head of care. And so what we did was convene um, a diverse group of um, sort of public and private sector folks to sort of have a dialogue, a high-level dialogue, on what the new vision of U.S. foreign assistance or sort of development um, sort of strategy should look like. And so over the course of 2012, we convened the group three times. And we sort of did it as sort of in a sort of a dialogue and, you know, had folks present on certain ideas. And then we sort of came up with this document here of three sort of broad recommendations, and which we'll go into shortly. So the first one is, you know, recommendation one. So make broad brace um, economic growth as a central principle of development policy. Now, I'm originally from Japan, so our folks at JICA would say, well, Anna, you know, we've been doing this for over 20, 30 years, and that's right. But for the United States context, this is sort of a huge shift, and I can have Dan sort of talk about that more and sort of in the context of U.S. politics and sort of thinking. But, you know, this is the sort of the rec building on some of the quotes that you've heard and sort of the trends um, that are here today that, you know, that really recognizing or really thinking about economic growth, job creation, entrepreneurship um, as sort of the leading principle in development policy and how to sort of align objectives on the ground, in headquarters, um, to sort of work towards that. And I think... Um, you know, this is a big priority for many countries, um, and I think that, you know, there needs to be sort of a consensus around this. So for us, this was sort of a, um, sort of the leading principle here to do that. And Dan, if you have any things to add, we'll come back to that. And then I think recommendation two is really to think about how to align, you know, sort of your instruments or tools with the private sector. Now, as we saw sort of the capital flows and the, you know, the sort of the shifting landscape that Dan had mentioned, you know, the world has changed. I mean, ODA, as you know, in this country too, and many other countries, I mean, the bull market, as Dan would say, I'll use this quote, the bull market of sort of ODA is over in the U.S. So how do you sort of bring all the tools to have better development outcomes? Now, the private sector and partnering with them is not the only solution. Government still is important. Uh, institution building, government <laughs> capacity, um, you know, there are things that government are still really good at. But we thought that sort of in order to have maximum impact, leveraging the skill sets or some of the know-hows or even private capital, the private sector is a really good complement and target to think about. And, you know, at the same time, of course, there are challenges to partnering with the private sector, which we'll go, go over later. But I think the really emphasis here is to really think about you know, private sector engagement upfront in your planning. Um, Dan and I co-authored a report on partnerships in 2011, and what we found is that many times in the U.S. context, PNG, Coke, and others were just brought Procter in. Procter and Gamble, not. Oh, sorry, sorry, Papua New Guinea. Sorry, sorry, Procter and Gamble. Yes, uh, or Coke, or you know, Starbucks. 
you know, one of the criticism that they had in partnering with the U.S. government agencies, which, by the way, there's about 23 of them that do it all sort of an ad hoc manner, was that, you know, that there was no streamlined process and they were not brought in early on to able to really co-plan and co-design projects with them. And so, you know, they just wanted, you know, X company to write a check and then mail a postcard. And so, and then I think, you know, of course, as we talked about this, there are companies who are way out front in that thinking, way beyond CSR, way beyond sort of just community engagement. And there are companies who are still in that paradigm. But I think the landscape, as Dan and I were saying, is moving in that direction. And over the last 10 years, we've seen that dramatic change. And I actually direct our corporate relations program at CSIS. And I've seen a huge shift even over the last seven years working with some of our corporate partners. So I think, as Dan already mentioned, you know, leveraging their know-how, business practices, supply chain, training. I think those are, you know, what we think are sort of a good complement to what government can also bring. And then recommendation three. Um, so in the U.S. context, what we thought was, you know, let's really think about in the United States how to promote trade and investing, trade and investment using underutilized or existing tools like the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, like the XM Bank like our U.S. Trade and Development Agency. Now, I know the context here in, in this country is a little bit different, but the fact is, you know, we're not asking to pump up the 150 account, which is a foreign aid account, foreign aid account, um, but to really say, you know, let's look at what we have already within the government system in the United States, and let's try to leverage those tools. Let's kind of just, re- sh- you know, shift the paradigm and think about sort of leveraging those actors and instruments um, for these development outcomes. So I think, um, you know, these are some of the ideas that we thought of and, you know, really, you know, the sort of the trade and aid conversation that Dan will go into later when we talk about in the context of the G20 that your country will be hosting. And I think there's just really an emphasis on sort of re-energizing the trade agenda um, with developing countries to really use the full spectrum of tools. Because at the end of the day, I mean, as you know, in Gozi, you know, there's a quote of people want opportunity for their own betterment. They want jobs. They want to learn about, you know, how to set up a business, learn um, new skills. And I think that's what ultimately, you know, what we should provide or think about and put emphasis on. So, um, you know, this is sort of the Those three pillars. Three, bump, the three bump, Those are the three bumpers. Yeah. And then I'm just going to talk briefly about partnerships. Um, you know, there are just many challenges and opportunities. And, you know, from what I understand here in this country, sort of, you know, this idea, you know, I think that your government has worked with private sector actors for many years, but I, you know, I've seen sort of a, you know, energy around Minister Bishop's sort of new vision and, um, you know, there are a lot of, I think, uh, lessons learned from the United States in the U.S. context, especially as Dan ran sort of the uh, partnerships office at USAID. So happy to come back to this later. I, I don't want to go into it too much right now. But um, I think, you know, going back to the point, you know, government should really think about the private sector as another actor and helping them think through, you know, some of their development strategies in different countries. So... Um, and then I'm going to just turn to Dan here um, to sort of put it in the context of the G20 and in Australia. Okay. So. okay, so if we were doing this in the context of you guys had a G20 meeting coming up and you had a new government that was putting a new set of priorities on the table, um, something on domestic resource mobilization, something on, um, on uh, infrastructure and supporting government's capacity to actually think through infrastructure investments. I'd also include in that things like the government's capability to actually be more sophisticated about procurement and the ability to actually procure 
um, infrastructure projects, uh, things around in financial inclusion and supporting financial flows. Um, then some other things to think about a little bit longer term would be the trade and aid nexus, something very much in alignment with Australia's, whether it's a labor government or whether it's a coalition government. I think Australia is known as an a, a economically open uh, society and has pushed free trade. Um, and I think that there is a big opportunity on the, tr the especially in if we get a trade uh, facilitation agreement on Thursday, fingers crossed, uh, which Australia has been helping to lead the diplomatic uh, push to try and save that. India has been has had had put some issues on the table recently. Um, there is a big development opportunity on how monies are spent on trade facilitation, um, and we've written about that. And I'm happy to share more about that. Uh, I'd also, uh, again, domestic uh, something about oil, gas, and mining revenues. I know in a previous government there was a big push on that. I I hope that this government retains. Um, the work that the previous government has done on that on oil, gas, and mining revenues. I would also just suggest there's something, a couple other things that have, as I've been having the conversations here and up up on um, in Parliament House, um, things like investment climate, the doing business indicators. I think Australia has an opportunity to to think about that as an as as an area where um, there may be things that could be done in, in that space as well. That's in line with what the government's seeking to do, but also has a lot of there's a lot of good development. Uh, research that have said these are these are important things to be working on things like the investment climate and the related doing business indicators. So, um, why don't we stop there? I know I know there's a lot of thoughtful people in the room. And I'm sure there's that was a lot of material to cover. So I'd welcome very much your feedback and also just to have a conversation with with all of you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks, Anna. I've certainly got through a lot in a short period of time. Um, I wonder how many of you actually have this report in front of you because it'd be probably in the question be quite useful to go back to the recommendations of the report um, as well as some of the opportunities that have been identified for Australia. So have most of you got the report in front of you or access to it? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, look, I'd like to open up the, the floor to discussion right now. Do we have some questions for our speakers? Yes, thanks. Alwyn, please. It's, um, it's really more of a comment, actually, than a question. Uh, thanks very much for the presentation. I, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not really sure what your agenda here is in Australia, but um, I'm certainly a supporter of, sort of the barreling messages that you've been given us. Um, just two things I'd comment on, perhaps points of emphasis. One, I think this point about the public sector not having the capacity to readily engage with the private sector is a really major practical challenge that needs... Uh, needs addressing and there's obvious you can build the, the capacity of the public sector but I also think there's other ways to do that more creative ways to sort of find intermediaries who can sort of talk the language of yes. the public and private sector so that's sort of um, if you are about sort of influencing how the development assistance etc people think about it. the other thing is I, I, I'm not sure whether it was a slip of the pen or something I, something I might take slight issue with, uh, with you guys with is it, there was a, a very brief uh, bullet point about saying all development should start with a partnership with the private sector. Mm -hmm. Now, whilst I sort of strongly believe that the private sector have an awful lot to contribute to an awful lot of development opportunities and challenges, I think a real mistake could be to sort of push this idea to a, a frightened bureaucracy. To, an, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, to say we start by talking to, the, to, to business, rather starting by defining what the challenge is, what the development opportunity is, and then think very hard and talk to the private sector about what their role in that, oh. in that world, in that system is. And, and to me, it's, 
It sounds uh, like spinning hands. Yeah, that's it's a, quite fundamental yeah, in terms of how you go about uh, going about doing effective development. So maybe yeah, so to a couple things. One is, yeah, the agenda was that you guys are, are celebrating the hosting the G20 in November I wanted to come after the May budget week and before the before the G20 meeting in November so that was the timing was that and my other thinking was um, I wanted to come uh, around the time as, as the policy was being I, I, I didn't necessarily want to influence the what the strategy was but I did think we had a number of ideas about, okay, how could you fill in behind the strategy? If that's what the strategy is, here are a series of things that sort of hit the, what the high-level panel has endorsed or is in line with the development zeitgeist of the Busan, Paris, country ownership stuff, you know, these various streams that are out there that are sort of development approved, if you will, of things that if, you, if your government's got a series of things they want to achieve, um, here's some things that I think perhaps fall into sort of good development interventions or practice that also happen to sort of fit the Venn diagram of good development, meet the development zeitgeist, and meet the priorities of the, the Abbott government was, was sort of my, my thinking. So that's, that, that's my agenda and why I'm coming now, or why we're coming now. On, on, that, on your point about the, the quibble, I think I take your point. Um, that's perhaps a little bit too much caffeine on our part. And so I'd say that, <laughs> I, I, yeah, so I would say that um, uh, we, I, I do think we should be thinking about pr if, private, if nine out of 10 jobs are in the private sector, I do think we should be more cognizant of that as a force. I also think at least, I don't know if you've served in a aid agency, you might have. You sounds like you've been, you've been in government before. Sounding great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, I often, when I was at AID or when I was at the World Bank, I often thought that that, the, that one lever, if I had to hammer, everything looked like a nail and that whatever we did was sort of the only thing that was sort of out there. And so I think in, as development practitioners, I think we have to raise our sights a little bit and just think about what our, we're a supporting actor in other people's dramas and that oftentimes the other actors are these private actors. So, so perhaps we should, we should do a better job of refining that because I take your point. I think of things like, um, I, I'm never gonna see a public-private partnership on democracy promotion or I'm gonna see a very hard time getting mining or oil and gas in my companies to, to support human rights work, but I think they're really important to development. And I think that the, the DFAT or USAID ought to fund that stuff because you're not gonna see philanthropy or you're not gonna see there's, there's very specific roles for ODA. I think it's an important thing. So, so I, I do take your point, and I actually I can think of examples where I, I wouldn't think of the private sector right away, and I think of things like human rights as an example. So you're, you're right. Or there are certain sorts of, certain kinds of anti-corruption work that's necessary where companies say, oh, I'd really like you to fix that, but I can't be out front on it because I may lose a contract or that sort of a thing. So I actually think we can, as donors, or as development practitioners sort of take the lead on something like that and, and help fix that over time. I mean, I so I take your point. I wouldn't suggest that you back away from no, no. Too, too far. No. I think even around human rights and you know, around anti-corruption, yeah. there's a clear corporate interest in improving corruption. Improving oh, yes. Yeah. And so where you could find that intersection and yes. go for it. No, no, but, th thanks for, but thanks for pointing that out. I do, I, I do take your point, and, and so, so without backpedaling too much, I, I'll just say it was one espresso too many when we were, when we were doing that PowerPoint. So thank you. Any other comments from the floor, questions? Yes, please. Um, it's following on from the one before. One area where I think business is quite reluctant to go in is in conflict 
Yes. That's a good, yeah, we should have brought that And we're being told that in the future, next 20, 30 years, most of our ODA efforts will be going into conflict in fragile areas. And you say yourself that business should invest in growing countries committed to business reform. That should be a guiding principle. Well, doesn't that mean that ODA is going to be off doing stuff in places business isn't going to go? So Mm -hmm. how does your notion of partnership work in this context? Well, I'd just say a couple of things. I would say it is true that in a number of conflict areas, it's much harder to get the private sector to participate. So I, I take your point. But what I understand from, the, from what I've read from the new aid strategy is that 90% is going to be in the Asia Pacific and in, um, and in um, so I'm not sure all, not all of it's going to be necessarily in conflict countries, but there will be a number of, of conflict countries that will be obviously affected by that. But if I think of Indonesia has, you know, in, Indonesia, where you is the the largest Australia is the largest donor in the world to Indonesia, I believe, by no, yeah. Okay, right. Okay. So, or I would just say it, it's certainly the case that in conflict zones, it's hard to get. The, one of the challenges is getting private sector investment uh, to those places. I my 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 thought is that um, there are certain sorts of extractive industries, whether it's agriculture or uh, agriculture and extractive industries, where they are actually. Much more, um, they're, yeah. They're they're actually much more um, where there's incentives for those folks to participate. Where they're not going to find sort of consumer consumers in say uh, you know uh, a place where there's shooting going on, or the, or the level of quality of property rights or rule of laws necessarily going to be that high. But there are going to be certain sorts of uh, contexts where people are going to have it's oil or gas or mining or, or certain sorts of agriculture. I think of cocoa going on in Cote d'Ivoire during the war there, right or um, in, in East Timor, coffee in East Timor, these sorts of things, right? So I think um, uh, it, it, is, it is the case that in the, in the case of conflict zones that, that it's particularly more difficult. But I would say that even in those places, there's, there's a concerted effort to find different ways to bring in the private sector. There's sort of a, either sharing risk or in terms of things like, so Afghanistan, um, there, you know, there's three cell phone companies in Afghanistan. During during uh, in, during the era of the Taliban, there were 50,000 cell phones. Today, there's 16 million cell phones in Afghanistan. Right? They have e-payments. They use the M-Pesa e-payment, like they have in Kenya or the Philippines. Well, you know, you couldn't have done that necessarily just from donors. So there is there are roles for the private sector even in complicated places and. Um, it's, uh, you know, you look at the Aga Khan Foundation, the Aga Khan Development Network, they often work in tough, difficult places. Um, they're investing in energy, they're investing in cell phone telephony, they're investing in hotels or in banks and even some of the world's toughest, most difficult places. And they take a hundred year view of, of a place like Kyrgyzstan or a hundred year view of a place like uh, Uzbekistan or even, they're in Afghanistan as well. So, um, and, and, and the Horn of Africa, they're in, they're in all those places. So. Um, it's true, uh, but and I would say it's a, it's a, a particular challenge. I do think it it means that we should be thinking cleverly about things like risk sharing. Uh, the other thing I think for Australia to think about is that Australia doesn't have a development finance institution like in the UK, the Commonwealth Development Corporation or the International Finance Corporation at the World Bank or the US has OPIC. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of appetite in this government to, to necessarily create that. But there hasn't ever been one, right? Now, Australia's had an aid program for 50 years, and there hasn't been one. But I do think one to think about in a case of conflict zone is you might think about things like loan guarantees or taking first loss positions in certain sorts of investments or providing um, 
certain kinds of project financing. Um, so I'm not saying you necessarily want to create a new agency that's, uh, or, but you might consider, one might consider in DFAT having an office uh, with certain sorts of additional capabilities uh, around say, like at AID there's something called the Development Credit Authority Office that has loan guarantees and so that, that might be something for Australia to think about and, and that, that those sorts of instruments are, uh, are applicable, applicable in conflict zones as well. Um, yeah, just might be able to add a, a personal comment. I noticed one of your points there for developing PPPs was the necessity for the um, public sector to be strengthened. Mm -hmm. I'll just, um, well, tomorrow I finish up three years managing a PPP project in the Philippines. Mm. Actually, Australia and Canada have funded. And the way it's worked is that the bilateral aid has allowed our team to bring in experts from the private sector to work with the public sector, essentially to reverse that balance, because these guys have been out negotiating, you know, developing country governments most of their life. Yes. Now they have the chance to turn the tide and um, put some of those skills and experience back into the, you know, the public sector of a country like the Philippines. And, um, it, it's, you know, it takes a little bit of time, that project's a bit over three years now, but just recently the Philippines PPP Centre was voted the best developing country PPP Centre in the world by a major British um, oh, that's brilliant. Center that looks at all these things. That's yeah. Well, I, I, let me just add to that, I'm involved with the World Economic Forum process. I've actually met former Prime Minister Rudd through, through the World Economic Forum process, and uh, uh, I was at the East Asia Summit about six weeks ago in, in Manila, and so I had a chance to be in a room probably about this size with a number of Filipino ministers. And the conversation was about infrastructure. And they said their biggest bottleneck is exactly this issue. It's government capacity, and what they really need help with is the sorts of things that Australia and Canada are helping them with. So you're, you know, I think it's absolutely spot on. I also think infrastructure companies and multinational companies have also woken up to the fact that to the extent that we have unsophisticated counterparts that oftentimes, and to the extent that they're under pressure on anti-corruption, uh, for anti-corruption or for other reasons, they may go with the lowest bidder. Now oftentimes, there's only one country in the world that's able to do sort of lowest bid. If you only do low bid as the only way you buy things, it's not Australia, it's not Canada, it's not Brazil, and it's not the United States, and it's not Japan. So you can figure, you know, so, so, it's, it's not necessarily, uh, and so I think that's exactly right. So many of these, company, these companies who have outfoxed procurement professionals for a long time now are saying, wait a minute, I actually need a sophisticated counterpart because my business is at risk now because if, uh, in, in some instances I might just go with the lowest bidder. And what I really want is for countries to be more sophisticated and think of things like life cycle costs and these sorts of things, right? The, sort of these complicated issues that, you, you know, that, that requires a little bit more sophistication on the part of governments to, so, so the, the interest of our, you know, so, so it's, this, is, this sort of intervention is really important and it's something that uh, I know that I think there's, there's a, you know, I think a lot of a need for and, and so I think it's very exciting what you're, what you're talking about and, rings true for me in terms of what I'm seeing out there in the rest of the world as well. Yeah, I think the, the key to partnerships is that 
both sides across the table need to be relatively, uh, you know, even Equal. in their abilities to negotiate. Otherwise, the outcome is inevitably swayed towards the private sector. That's right. And the fact that there are all of these wonderful people out there in their 60s, 70s that are retired now, they've made a lot of money, and they're willing to come back in. Pre present company excluded. <laughs> Well, th thank you for sharing that, because I, I agree, and I do think this is... I, I think if, if, if the Abbott government wants to strengthen governance, this is an area that would be an opportunity for DFAT to, to push on, I think. Yeah. Stephen. Yeah, yeah Stephen Howes, I work at the Development Policy Center, and thanks very much for coming. It's always uh, very important to find out what the U.S. is thinking, because it's very influential here. So I wanted to ask two questions. I mean, we always try to separate, you know, on one hand, the objective of involving the private sector more in the aid program, yeah. mm -hmm. and on the other hand, how important economic growth should be as an objective for the aid program. Yeah. I think uh, we're very keen on the first one. We're not so committed on the second one. You, you're arguing for both. I'm arguing for both. So I just want to, just to separate those two. On that first one, involving the private sector, it'd be good to get more of a sense of what are the lessons from the U.S. Because, for example, we're setting up an innovation fund. Yes. That's based on a U.S. model. You guys are partnering with the U.K. on this and, yeah, the, US, and the U.S. Yeah. So is yeah. that working well? Is that a good thing to get involved in? Uh, we've also had an enterprise challenge fund as a yeah. pilot, which uh, seemed to work well, but we're not sure whether it did. So your experience, thank okay. you for your experience. Okay. And then just to finish on the second part, it seems to me if you're, you're arguing that that should be the central objective of yep. the aid program, but since I've had a look at the report, I mean, I noticed like health is $8 billion, economic development is $4 billion. Yep. You're not arguing that economic development should be eight and health should be four. No. no. And uh, nor are we, right? So we, then you have this rhetoric that's not really matched by mm -hmm. action on the ground and it becomes very confusing. So, you know, I just like to kind of challenge you with that, I guess. I, th I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. I would say as follows. I believe that as the world is going to continue. So let me start with the second one first about economic growth. I would just say that. Um, Many developing countries over the next 10 years are going to be able to finance much of their own development through domestic resource mobilization. Not every country. There are a lot of failed states. There are a lot of countries in, in conflict or uh, broken societies that, are, that were 10 or 20 percent of their GNP is going to continue to be ODA. But, there's, that's, I, I think that there are, but there are an increasing number of countries, and even in this region of the world where Indonesia or the Philippines are certainly examples of this, where they can certainly pay for much of their own development on their own. And, um, and so my view is that should we necessarily use our limited aid dollars on um, for paying for basic human needs in place like India? I'll use that as an extreme example. Should we be paying for, should the U.S. be paying for tuberculosis in Uttar Pradesh in India at this point in time when they have a space exploration program, they have their own starter aid program, I have a, I have a, pro I think, I don't think we've fully, I don't think as an aid community have fully sort of, fully caught up with sort of the changing dynamics on the ground and there's, it strikes me as that there's a lot of um, uh, bureaucratic inertia in sort of the way in which we're programming a lot of this basic human needs work if, if there are many societies that are able to actually pay for books, school books or these sorts of things. So I think, I think we actually do need to take a look at sort of how we're financing uh, in many countries, I'm not saying in all countries, and you'll, you'll be able to list the, the dozen or so countries or the two dozen countries where we're still going to need, it's 20% of the GNP is ODA, but I think that there's a, an ever larger growing number of countries where 
they're going to be able to pay for their own basic media. So yes, I actually think in the medium term, I actually do think we should be thinking about spending more on go good governance and economic growth and less on basic human needs in those countries where we can actually, where those countries can actually pay for their, 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 basic, their basic health programs on their own. But you just argue, put that money to health research, right? So... Yeah, we could do that. That's fair yeah. enough. I, would, uh, I think it automatically points you to one sector. Well, I, I, my, I do think, my, my personal view is that I think that there's, we have crowded out in the U.S. system everything else except for, for health. And I think it's. I think we. I think as a result, we can't do anything else except for health, uh, in the U.S. system. So I would. I would caution against following our example on that. And so it, it's actually a problem. Um, so I do think that. Uh, and I also think as the world changes, I do think we need to sort of make some adjustments in terms of how we're spending. How we're spending our, our limited ODA. And if ODA is shrinking, how do we use that those limited dollars? Should it just be? Should we just spend it on health research? I think there's an argument for. Uh, for that, but but I actually think that there are things like fighting corruption or supporting investment climate work or things like strengthening government's capacity to actually be more sophisticated on procurement or domestic resource mobilization, their ability to actually collect taxes or go after tax evaders, strengthening rule of law, um, going the trade and aid nexus, which I actually think is a big opportunity. It's trillion dollars of additional trade between um, uh, developed in developing countries, and you can we can hardly find a dime for it in the U.S. system because all the all the all the aid money is spoken for. So, uh, you know, if this is such a big opportunity, we can't find any money for it because all the aid money is spoken for. I think we got a problem. So that's my. I mean, I, I write we write more politely than that, but I think that's the that's I think the truth of the matter. So, I do think Australia has an opportunity. Um, to back its rhetoric on terms of where it wants to go with a number of things that are in line with the Busan agenda, in line with the high-level panel, uh, where if there's going to be, I understand there's been a lot of uh, budget tumult here in the last 12 months, but it seems to me if this is where the new government's going to be going, there are some things that this country can do as a medium-sized power to actually move in the direction of where I think a lot of countries are going to be going. If, if you do copy-paste on things like we're going to, we're going to, buy a couple more ARVs or we're going to do more on malaria, and I'm not trying to be flippant or dismissive about it, I think it would be a mistake for, for this government to do that, especially given its new strategy. I think there's a whole series of opportunities that it could be taken given sort of the development zeitgeist that's out there. may not be what the development community necessarily has historically signed on for, but I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sort of outside affirmation of, sort of many of the things that they're speaking of doing uh, out there, whether it's the high-level panel or the, or the Busan agenda, et cetera, there's a lot of things that, that speak to it. So, um, so I, I actually would say that on economic growth, I would like to see us do that. To the extent that governments can pay for their own development, we should stop paying for basic human needs and use our limited monies for economic growth and good governance. Uh, on the case, on the private sector and in terms of lessons learned, which you asked about, I'd say that um, some of the things that Anna was referring to, we did a whole report on public-private partnerships and what were some of the lessons about that. And what, we're going to send you guys an email with sort of a whole series of reports that we've done that if you have trouble sleeping at night, you can read these things. But, um, but I do think one is on uh, bringing, having an ability to have a structured conversation with companies early, involve companies in... So as you, you know, at least if, if I'm, a, I'm an, an aid program officer in, in, uh, in Indonesia where you guys have a $900 million a year program, I think, I'd want to, I'd as you guys are, ha there, at least in the AID context, 
you want to do two, thing, two things we would have done at AID. One is you, you, you can't build multi-sector partnerships through budget support or sector support, writing government checks directly to governments, which uh, I, I think is actually a danger for, as you lose capable people in your aid technocracy, um, the temptation is going to be to write really big checks as budget support or sector support or park money in, in trust funds and multilateral institutions. Just guessing, but I, I think that's a risk for, you need some capable po folks, technocratic people in the field and in Canberra to actually run aid programs, and I understand that's actually a risk, I think, right now, I think, so I think that's something to watch. Uh, I actually think this would be something, if I was at a think tank in Canberra, I'd be looking at sort of the human resource issue and sort of what the implications are, because an easy thing to do if I've only got, if I've lost 300 people out of, say, 1,500, which is, I guess, the number that, that I'm hearing thrown around. Well, does that, isn't it easier for me to just move money if I'm one of the bureaucrats in the system to just say, well, I'm going to do a big trust fund at Asian Development Bank and they can send me a postcard once a year? I mean, that would be the, that would be the, the if I was in the bureaucracy, that's what I'd be doing. So I think if I, you know, so I'd say, one is you need capable people to build partnerships. You need, you need the ability to work with nonprofits. You need the ability to work with organizations like the World Visions of the World who do work with companies. Those NGOs need to be able to work with companies in a more sophisticated way. I, I met with the World Vision people in Canberra yesterday, and I said, I'm sure there are people in your organization that are reluctant to work with the private sector. They didn't sign on. They're the Birkenstock crowd, and they didn't, they didn't want to work with the, with the evil co corporate types. Well, the world's changed. And so I think it's changed for, I mean, if you talked to Oxfam 15 years ago, they wouldn't have worked with companies at all. Or if you talked to Save the Children or Care, they wouldn't have worked at companies at all. Today, they do. They work with them. In, so the world has changed for, for, for those actors as well. So um, I would say bring, have cap you need capable people in your, in, in your development that know how to talk to companies. You need capable people in, in the NGO or the third sector to, to, to build multi-sector partnerships. Um, I would say in terms of working with companies, you need to bring them in early to what you're planning on doing. In terms of saying what I used to call sort of this moment of programmatic agnosticism where you had sort of every three to five years you're saying, what am I going to do and what am I going to do in East Timor? Before you sort of say, well, you know, if, if you're, you know, if, if a mining company comes to you and you're in year three of a five-year program, you said, hey, look, you should have come to see me three years ago when I was thinking about what I was going to do in the agriculture sector. So you want to bring people in early. You want to have some structured way in which you can talk to folks uh, without feeling like you're going to run afoul of whatever your procurement rules are of your aid program. So we created a, a, a window called an, um, what's called an AID, an annual program statement, to create sort of an open blanket uh, call for proposals, all geographies, all sectors, anytime. If you want to talk about a multi-sector partnership, you come talk to us so that people could feel free to do that without getting into trouble. And you needed some walking around money. So having a walking around fund isn't a bad thing. I, I actually think that that's okay. I, I'm a little worried about how aid, you know, Rasha is a smart guy, um, but I think his group is particularly enthralled with sort of the new, new thing. And so I'm not saying that's not necessarily bad, but I would just say that when we think about innovations, we may also want to think about are the things you want to scale. We could actually use that money to scale as opposed to necessarily the absolutely newest thing. So think about using that thing as a scale factor, using those resources as risk sharing on things like similar to the Development Credit Authority at USAID. That's the other thing I, I want to encourage you to, if you're not going to create a DFI, to think about what instruments, what sorts of guarantee instruments or risk-sharing instruments that DFAT could have within an office 
I thought I've read I've read Minister Bishop's uh, speeches, and she wants to bring in people through secondments. I think that's great. I hope they bring in a number of bankers from the banking system in 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 Australia or former IFC staff who are Australians um, to help them create some of that some of the, those sorts of capabilities. So th those are my those would be my, my response. So I I take your point, and you elicited a long answer from me, but but it's obviously something I care a lot about. So you push the right button. <laughs> Okay, we've just about time. Is there a question? And I'll promise to keep a short answer. Come here to advocate for these ideas on the G20 agenda. How are you going with advocating them in your own country? No man is a prophet in their own country, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? I say, so I would say, um, as having worked in the Bush administration, I have been Mitt Romney's primary advisor on international assistance. I'm, I'm a flawed vessel uh, in the in, in the Obama administration. Not completely, though. I would say the following: We do a lot. I'd say. We partner a lot with, with the development finance arm of the U.S. government. So for this, this report was bipartisan, and it was blessed by Tom Daschle and Tom Pritzker. I'd say rhetorically they're fine with it in terms of what they actually do with it, I think is sort of an open question. Um, I would say things like the trade, the trade and aid nexus, we've been, we've been working with senior-level Obama appointees who may not get a, a, you know, a total support from the top level of, the, of their government. Um, but they've, they've come to us on that. They've come to us on the domestic resource mobilization conversation. They've come to us on the, on the, the, the State Department came to us and said we want to do a, a we do an, every, Hillary Clinton initiated something called the QDDR. It's like a strategic review of soft power. And so they entrusted me with, with running a process for them on that. So I would say that um, we have an aid program that is held hostage by interest group politics in the United States. And it's far more complicated to change the direction of our aid program as a result of the bureau, both sort of the iron triangle of uh, congressional committees, uh, interest groups, and specific sort of interested parties within the bureaucracy. And so I would say that one of the reasons I'm here is because I believe that not everyone may agree with the coalition government or the direction it's going or what all their decisions, but I will say the following that they uh, have a unique opportunity. As can Australia and Canada have the unique opportunity of being middle-sized countries with governments that um, are, want to go in a certain direction, and many of those things are not bad things, but from, even from a development standpoint. And because much of the aid money in the multilaterals and some of the larger donors is spoken for, that you guys actually have an opportunity to lead on a number of front in a number of areas that other donors are not going to be able to do it. So Australia has an opportunity to lead. That's why I flew all the way here is because I believe Australia has an opportunity to lead. And to actually there's a lot of rhetoric on a lot of the topics we've talked about, but I think Australia actually has the ability to actually sort of walk the talk and have other folks, including the United States, follow them on some of these things. That's why I'm here. Yeah. So Daniel, now's the time for you to go and convince the bureaucracy. I'm gonna do that. Ladies and gentlemen, will you join me? You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.